Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the channel with Carrie Figder, associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. Today, my guest is Professor Elaine Landemore. We will be talking about her new book, Democratic Reason, Politics, Collective Intelligence, and the Rule of the Many which has just been published with Princeton University Press. Elaine is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Yale University. We're all probably familiar with the thought that democracy is merely the rule of the unwise mob. In the hands of Plato and a long line of philosophers following him, this thought has been developed into a formidable anti-democratic argument. Only truth or wisdom confers political authority, and since democracy is the rule of the unwise mob, it has no authority whatsoever. Now, this rough line of argument has proven so formidable that, in fact, many democratic theorists have tried to evade it by explicitly denying that politics has anything at all to do with wisdom. But there's another strand of democratic theory that takes the argument by the horns and tries to show that democracy is indeed epistemically sound. Now, some of these views try to show that democracy, warts and all, is wiser than the alternatives. But others have gone further to try to show the more ambitious claim that democracy has a positive epistemic value. In Democratic Reason, Elaine Landemore pursues this more ambitious path. She argues that empirical data pertaining to the epistemic significance of cognitive diversity show that democracy is uniquely placed to supply distinctive epistemic social goods. Along the way, she explores a range of current findings regarding the wisdom of crowds and also engages core issues at the heart of normative political theory. This is an exciting and comprehensive contribution to democratic theory. So we turn to the interview. Hello, Elaine Landemore. Hello, Bob. How are you doing today? I'm great. And you? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for having me. Sure. Well, everyone, today on New Books in Philosophy, my guest is Elaine Landemore, and we'll be talking about her new book, Democratic Reason, which is just published with Princeton University Press. Now, I highly recommend this book because it provides uh, what I regard as a very careful and compelling defense of the idea that democracy can be justified on epistemic grounds. Um, Landemore, that is, adopts uh, um, uh, a crucial uh, premise that drives many familiar anti-democratic views, and she effectively turns the tables on them, uh, arguing in effect that uh, a democratic social order makes possible a certain kind of expertise. Um, this is, of course, uh, I think you'll recognize a, a bold thesis. Um, and so there's a lot to discuss. Um, but before we get into those details, uh, Elaine, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So um, I guess I'm French. You note that from my accent immediately. Um, I, mm-hmm. I come from Normandy, from a town called Caen, C-A-E-N, it's spelled. Uh, people always get it confused with Cannes, but uh, I assure you it's not nearly as glamorous. So. <laughs> no film festivals? <laughs> no film festivals. Um, <laughs> so I, um, I became interested in philosophy, I suppose, in my last year of high school, because in France, uh, philosophy becomes part of the curriculum in high school in your last year. And it, it was truly a revelation to me. I uh, really, really enjoyed it. Um, I, I was at the time in a very scientific curriculum, so it, it was just a great contrast, and it felt more like a natural home uh, to me than, than physics or chemistry. 
uh, even though I did like mathematics a lot. So sure. I suppose the um, and I suppose the main question I had at the time I mean, for I, that that sort of made me uh, love philosophy was why should we act morally? Like wh- why are the reasons if we if we don't believe in in God among other things? What what are the, what motivation should we have to to act morally? And behind that question, I realized later on I I also had an interest in a more social scientific question, which is like. Why do we make the choices we make? So it was a more of a, more of a positive question behind that. I, I think has come to become even more dominant in my interest. Um, so I did my undergraduate and part of my graduate studies in Paris uh, when I, I moved there when I was eighteen, where I studied moral philosophy and epistemology at the Ecole Normale Supérieure, mm-hmm. and I also studied at, uh, at Sciences Po Paris, where I took. Um, the unusual decision, I suppose, at least for a, for a philosopher, to, to major in economics and finance rather than public service. This is resulted uh-huh. to sort of, but I, I had this nagging feeling that maybe, you know, I, I should have looked into more uh, uh, world-oriented professions. And so, I don't know, I was interested in economics and finance. And then uh, that's when I became exposed to game theory and rational truth theory and economic theory in general. And I remember being absolutely mesmerized by game theory in particular and all the game theoretical trees and matrices and, and, and also the concept of the prisoner's dilemma, for example. I right. thought there was something extremely elegant and, and, and clear in this, uh, in this approach, uh, in this way of modeling human choices and, and showing how you know, strategic interactions between perfectly rational individuals can yield socially suboptimal outcomes. So I, I, so I had this like brief total uh, fascination for it. And then I became much more critical, of course, like most people um, do uh, b- uh, become, uh, and um, I decided to write um, my my dissertation on on uh, the philosophy of economics, and it was supposed to be a much more sort of a criticism of uh, of rational truth theory, really. So and uh, and oh yeah, so I should also mention maybe that just before I, I did that, before I turned to the philosophy of economics, I had written a, a master thesis on uh, the notion of probability in David Hume. So I think this this all connects in a way. Uh, looking back, I realized that this 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 you know there's a sort of almost clear path to to my current interests. Um, and in in Hume, I was. Um, Trying to complicate the classical picture of of Hume as a, as an irrationalist in a way for somebody for whom uh, uh, reason is and ought to be uh, the the slave of the passions, right? So right. I was trying to show that no reason has some role uh, to play, in particular in the through the distinction between philosophical and non-philosophical probabilities. You can sort of um, clarify what kind of um, ends are worth pursuing and what kind of ends are not worth pursuing. So it's not entirely, uh, it's not the, the, the picture of Hume that um, was, was is usually given. So right. So then um, I left for the US. So I, I, I had this um, plan of going there for a year and, and do some research on the philosophy of economics. Uh, and, and I had an opportunity to go, in, it was an exchange program between, uh, between my school and Harvard University. Mm-hmm. But then after after a few months, I decided that there was no way I was going back to France. <laughs> Firstly, I applied for every program in the U.S. and I uh, I was lucky to get in uh, Harvard, and so I stayed there for about six years. And 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 I, so I ended up changing completely um, my topic. Right, I, I moved from the philosophy of economics to to a def- an epistemic defense of democracy. And I, I it's I, I this is actually a move that I. I I suppose it's due to the the reformatting you go through when you when you go into a, a PhD in a, in the US, where you're encouraged to develop your own ideas as opposed to criticizing those of other people. And so I that, that's what happened to me. I thought, well, if I start criticizing economists, you know, economists are not going to listen to me. And philosophers are already, you know, in agreement that rational choice theory is a very reductive approach to human choices. So what's the point? And and so I, I turned to other things. And I discovered the Condorcet-Jury theorem, and and at the same time, I was really interested in deliberate theories of democracy. And so it all sort of combined together to make me. Um, and I read S- David Estlin's work, of course, which was quite crucial. Um, and uh, so it all added up to um, to this new this new approach. Well, that's fantastic. Um, and you know, one of the I think refreshing things about the book, uh, Democratic Reason, is um, it's clear. I mean, I was not at all surprised uh, when you were revealing your background in uh, economics and more social scientific areas, because um, one of the nice things about the book. Um, is uh, 
how um, driven it is by um, not only theoretical normative considerations about democratic theory and democratic authority uh, um, and the institutions of democracy in an idealized sense, um, but the book really does um, uh, get its hands dirty with um, a lot of the empirical uh, results uh, and a lot of the empirical material uh, that um, deliberative Democrats, I think, um, too often, um, you know, leave to somebody else. Right, right, right. <laughs> if that makes sense. No, no, so, makes sense. Um, Although I would say that democratic theory is actually a field in political theory where there is much more of an encounter between the empiricists and the sort of theorists than anywhere else, actually. So... Well, that seems right. Um, I was thinking particularly of um, uh, democratic theory and philosophy departments, um, ah, yes. where the empirical stuff is um, yeah. uh, sometimes left uh, left to be discussed later in the later in the day or the week. Um, so that's all very uh, um, fascinating. Let's uh, pick up with with, with the book then. Um, so I, I'd like to, um, I guess, naturally enough, begin at the very beginning. Um, I guess that many of our listeners um, will be familiar um, with uh, a standard line uh, and a very popular line of anti-democratic argument right. um, that has an epistemic or um, a dimension or a concern with expertise. And it goes back to Plato at least. And it says something very roughly now like the following, um, you know, politics uh, or our collective lives maybe is something that's just too important for um, uh, uh, too important to be left to uh, the stupid masses, um, and so the correct political order um, has to be one which empowers the knowers or the, right. the people who are most epistemically responsible. Um, and that should be familiar to anybody who's read Plato, of course, as I mentioned. But um, as you note in your book, and one of the the the, the, the starting points of your book. Um, is that um, the idea that democracy has distinctive epistemic benefits um, is a thought that goes back uh, throughout democratic theory. And many democratic theorists um, have been keen to try to, uh, as I said earlier, turn the tables on this anti-democratic argument. And it the thought even goes back to Aristotle, mm -hmm. that there could be an epistemic benefit to um, a certain uh, a certain kind of group that outstrips the epistemic power of even the best person in the group. Um, we find similar kinds of thoughts, um, namely that democracy has distinctive epistemic powers in democratic theorists or theorists as otherwise diverse as Spinoza, Rousseau, Mill, John Dewey, yeah. and even Hayek. Um, and I think the book does a really nice job of sort of sorting all of those uh, th – that tradition or that genealogy, as you call it, uh, um, uh, out. Um, can we start there? Can you tell us a little bit about the, the, the genealogy, as you put it, of this epistemic approach to democratic theory? Yes, sure. So, I, um, so yes, actually, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's an old idea, really, um, that actually goes back even further back to the, to the sophist, you might say. Sure. Um, but Aristotle is the first to have like sort of clearly expressed it. So it's um, this famous passage from the from the Politics in uh, in Book Three, Chapter Eleven, where he he writes. Um, uh, he has many passages where he talks about the superiority of uh, democracy potentially through different metaphors. But the most famous one is certainly this one um, that compares democracy to a feast to which the many contributes. So it reads like this. The many who are not as individuals excellent men nevertheless can, when they have come together, be better than the few best people, not individually but collectively, just as feasts to which many contribute are better than feasts provided at one person's expense. That's and, right. and it's an intuition that um, I think we can all understand and relate to, and it's just a little bit mysterious what, what's doing the work of ensuring that the, the party to which the many contribute is better than uh, than a party organized at uh, the expense of just one person. And, and, um, and <laughs> there are different ways to, to explain it. Uh, and, and what I try to say in, in this chapter is to say that some people attribute the epistemic properties um, to deliberation. So just the fact that we can exchange arguments among many people who come from different perspectives and bring different things to the table uh, will ensure that the, the party has, you know, wine, beer, 
orange juice, all sorts of things, as opposed to just beer, maybe. Uh, and that the music is diverse as well. It's not just heavy metal. So I make this comparison. Like if, if you are unlucky and it's a heavy metal fan who's organizing the party, it could be really bad. I mean, <laughs> unless you know, unless for the unless uh, except for the minority who actually like that sort of party. So right. so when you when you uh, so so it's something about you know exchanging arguments and and, uh, and and plans about how to make the party better uh, and distributing roles and, and uh, responsibilities uh, um, to the best effect. And then there are a more aggregative reading, which is just about, well, um, just um, the the probability that, as I said, uh, only, you know, beer would be provided or only heavy metal music would be provided. Whereas if you have a lot of people, the likelihood that all sorts of things will be, all sorts of different and pleasant things uh, will be brought to the table is much more likely. So this, so that, that's kind of like the two traditions I identify. People who talk, who, who identify the, the mechanism as deliberation, so I call them the talkers. And um, and people who think it's uh, who have this intuition that it's more about the sheer numbers, the law of large numbers, basically. Uh, and even if there's no exchange of arguments or reasons or or information, you are still going to end up with something better. And these are the the, the counters. If you will. Maybe we should um, specify what what's meant by epistemic, actually, because I realize not. I mean, I'm I'm sure this audience knows, but just just to be clear, uh, it it means um, the, the knowledge um, aggregating properties of democracy, or also the, the truth tracking property. And then there's right. this whole issue of what we mean by that, but roughly that's what that's what it means. That's right, um, and th that's fine. Um, so, apart from Aristotle, though, yeah. um, uh, can you can you tell us just a little bit about um, the way that this distinction between, as you put it, uh, very helpfully, I should add, between talkers and counters, um, uh, how does that play out um, in the history of democratic theory? Can you tell us a little bit about the ways in which um, th this this idea? Uh, gets played out in later thinkers, and I'm thinking particularly um, of people like John Stuart Mill and and John Dewey, John Dewey and and Hayek. Oh, so yeah, so so first I would say that the the the, the talkers um, are more numerous to a degree because I think um, in order to to account for the uh, aggregative properties of democracy, you needed um, a concept of probability that 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 became really available only late, like in basically the 18th century, and so. There are more there are more people on the side of the talker than there are on the side of the counters, and so on the side of the talker, so we have a lot of people. But John Stuart Mill is um is is one very interesting figure because I I actually was not sure for a long time whether he counted as an epistemic democrat or a, or an epistemic liberal, uh, right. and he, in fact he's both I believe. Uh, so he, at the same time he thinks that um it's about uh, uh, letting uh, the market of ideas sort of sort out the truth, right? Like if you let people who disagree talk things through freely, um, you at least ensure that uh, the, the event the, the, that even truths don't don't turn into dead dogmas, and so that the, the, the pool of arguments is constantly renewed and revivified. And so that's that's more a case for the epistemic properties of a liberal uh, context where right. people are free right. to speak. But then there's also this more uh, democratic side to him, which is uh, uh, his defense of representative government, by which he really means, a, strangely, a, a participatory form of government, uh, where it's it's um, government by discussion, and and uh, and I think that's that's where the, that's a connection with the with the the talkers and 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 other people who believe that it's deliberation among the many that's going to do the, the the work of uh, producing better laws and better outcomes. Right, right, excellent. Um, and is Hayek um, is Hayek a counter, or is Hayek? I'm wondering who 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 might be a good example of a of a counter rather than a talker. Well, a better example to me is uh, is uh, is Condorcet, right? Because he he, oh, right. he actually yeah. provides a, a really like the, the first very very clear and, and rigorous uh, version of the argument, right? He says that uh, if you assume that. Um, for a given assembly of people, uh, each individual has a better than than as um, uh, um, a chance of, of getting to the right answers between two options better than than um, 0.5. Then, when uh, as the numbers of uh, people grows larger, uh, the majority is likely to be right with a probability of one, roughly. That's kind of the argument. Assuming assuming other things, including the fact that people vote independently. Um, and uh, and they vote sincerely, and uh, so there are there are a certain number of assumptions. So he has he has this like 
jury theorem, which is the formalization of, of that intuition that people like even Spinoza maybe had, but couldn't really uh, explicit uh, in a way he can, because he has, he has now this concept of probability, which has b- become available since Pascal, more or less. And so that's, that's the uh, epitome of a, of a counter for me. So Hayek, for me, doesn't actually count as, a, as an epistemic Democrat per se, because his focus is on the market as opposed to um, an actual political uh, collective decision procedure. So for me, I've, I've come to realize that the, 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 um, the story that Hayek uh, gives us also involves the law of large numbers. And, and uh, you know, it, it's all sorts of uh, fascinating insight about the role of the invisible hand that regulates the market and the mechanism of prices. And, but it's not, the, the outcome of the market cannot really be appropriated by, um, by the public as such. It's, uh, the outcome of the market is a byproduct of, um, is an un- unintentional byproduct product of uh, of individual decisions that are not meant to be about um, something collective or something public like the common good. So I think for me, it's, it's a categorical mistake to compare the market and democracy. I think the, 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 the comparison that I want to restrict myself to in that book, that I restrict myself to in that book, is between the rule of one, the rule of the few, and the rule of the many. And from, from that point of view, the question of the market is, um, is orthogonal. It's, the market is a tool that can be used by the, the one, the few, or the many, but it's not in itself a, a political decision uh, procedure. Right, right. Excellent. So um, then let's, let's move on then to, to the, 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 the positive um, thesis in democratic theory uh, that, that you're, you're exploring in the book. Um, and to put it very broadly, um, because there are lots of, of, of features uh, of your view, um, the thought is that um, there's a distinctively epistemic um, argument in favor of democratic politics because democracy uh, manifests um, or makes possible, we might say, um, a certain kind of um, uh, expertise or, or um, a certain kind of knowledge. Um, and it has to do, uh, the argument does, with the claim uh, that cognitive diversity is itself a certain kind of um, engine which makes for a unique kind of epistemic um, power. Um, could, you, could you spell that out a bit, yeah. that the, the connection between the epistemology and, and the, the truth-trackingness and the getting things right and cognitive diversity? Right. So, so the core of the argument, as you said, is, is a connection between numbers, including more people, and uh, getting more of something which turns out to be key to collective intelligence, which is cognitive diversity. So what is cognitive diversity? So cognitive diversity, it's, um, it's a sort of sort of a psychological concept, really. It's, it's an internal, um, uh, it, it's, it's a, the, the difference between the, the mental frameworks that people use to, to identify problems in the world and solve them. So it's mm-hmm. something that uh, you can only understand di- differentially, so to speak, by comparing the way people approach problems. So it's, it's a group property rather than a, than, a, than a property of individuals. And I think, uh, to go back to, to the example of uh, Plato and, and the anti-elitist uh, tradition, right? I think their mistake was to assume that the, the intelligence of a group is a function uniquely of the intelligence of the members. When in fact, it turns out that recent stories, recent theories of collective intelligence um, tell us that co- the, 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 the intelligence of a group, in, in, in specifically of a problem-solving group or a deliberating group, is a function of two things, at least. So one is obviously the intuitive thing, which is uh, the intelligence of the members. So you need members that are not too dumb for, for the group mm-hmm. to be smart. But even more importantly for the problem-solving group, you need groups that contain people that think differently, right? So that's, that's a key, key argument. So, and um, what I'm arguing, so my, my addendum to the, so that I'm borrowing that that's theory really from uh, uh, the work uh, of Scott Page, who with Lu Hong has, has put forward that, that, um, that, that, that diversity trumps ability theorem, where, by which you know, he proves that um, what matters more to the quality of the output of a problem-solving group is how diverse the, the members are in the, in the way they, they approach the problem rather than how smart they are, which is really a counterintuitive and very powerful result. And my addendum to that is to say, look, what is um, uh, the, the most parsimonious way 
or the cheapest way or, or you know, the, the simplest way to uh, maximize cognitive diversity. So diversity in the way people approach problems. Uh, given that um, you don't know ahead of time what the problems are going to be. In a, in, in, that, that, so there's a strong um, hypothesis about the nature of political problems and the fact that politics is about um, collectively addressing the unknown, right? Well, I say right. the, the, the most part, the, the best or the cheapest way to get that cognitive diversity is to include everyone because that, that's the only way you're sure that you're not going to miss out on, on a key perspective because you don't know where it, the solution might come from. So that's sort of the argument. And, uh, right. Um, so let me just um, a- ask you to, 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 to fill in just yep. a, 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 um, an important detail there um, about the nature of the cognitive diversity. Um, so one of the things you said is um, we're talking about a cognitive diverse group is a, a, di- a cognitively diverse group is a group in which the members, uh, as you just put it, think differently or um, uh Invoke a different different approaches to a problem. Right. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, about about what, what what that kind of diversity uh, amounts to? Right. So um, maybe I can take the example from Twelve Angry Men that I develop in the book. So yes. So good. The, the, so the, the audience probably knows the story, but it's um, a group of um, twelve jurors who are locked up in a room on a hot summer day to sort out to, to figure out whether a young Puerto Rican accused of murder is um, is guilty or not of, of killing his father. And what mm-hmm. so so the group is actually not all that diverse on the face of it. It's like twelve uh, more or less white men. But they're sufficiently diverse from from the perspective that matters. Like there is like an older man who's um, uh, so, so who's got the experience of you know uh, age and so can identify flaws in the in the testimony of one of the witnesses about the time it took him to cross the corridor and run to the door and see because he claims to have seen the murderer. And um, then there's uh, the perspective of um, of uh, somebody who has glasses who can actually. Uh, understand the meaning of the red uh, sort of marks on the side of another key witness who said she also saw the murderer through a passing train when she was lying in bed. And in fact, it turns out that she um, she most likely wears glasses, but she wasn't wearing them on, on the day she was testifying in front of the jury. So the, the cognitive diversity is is um is always relative to the question at hand, but it's it's an internal. Um, uh, it's it, it neither the, the the cognitive diversity should be distinguished from both its causes and its um, its symptoms, if you will. So it's not uh, gender diversity, it's not um, ethnic diversity. Those things, gender diversity, ethnic diversity, may cause cognitive diversity because it gives people different types of experiences in the world. But it's not the same uh, as cognitive diversity. Cognitive diversity is really the, the, the process, the, the process that goes on in, in people's heads when they consider data or, or arguments. And cognitive diversity is not either to be confused with its output, which, um, which is a, a diversity of views. That's the, the, the outcome, but really the, 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 the cognitive diversity is about the process, if you will. Right. So it's a kind of diversity of, um, sensitivities to various kinds of data might, might that be a that, way to put it that you can put it that way you can put it as a you can define it as a prism so you're going right. to see only certain facets of reality because you're more attuned to them through your personal experience through 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 maybe your gender through you know so another way to look at it is um as people having different models, um, different predictive models about the world. So, for example, when, when you talk about um, prediction and, and voting, for example, and we are trying to figure out who of two candidates is going to make the better president. So I may base my, my prediction on you know, his charisma and um, the price of oil. And you mm-hmm. may base your, your prediction on something completely different, like his competence on fiscal issues and um, the likelihood of a, of a war with Iran or something like that. So that's cognitive diversity because we're, we're, we're reading the world through completely different, uh, using completely different variables. Right. Um, so let me just ask one, one additional uh, question about um, something that comes up later in the book. Uh, I should, I should mention, um, but it might be uh, relevant here. Um, about the connection between democratic and liberal institutions, because it seems then that um, part of what um, 
the epistemic argument that you're running requires is cognitive diversity, but it looks as if part of what um, uh, cognitive diversity about, is about is not only having the different perspectives um, and the different approaches to problems, but also um, ensuring that the social order is structured such that um, people can make their contributions um, to um, collective decision processes, um, despite the fact that they might have, um, uh, in some cases, I guess, uh, very obviously different approaches to problems. Is that a way to understand the, the you, you say later in the book that um, a proper epistemic democracy has to be politically uh, liberal. It has to be yeah. liberal in its institutions. Is this one of the places where that connection Absolutely. gets drawn? Yeah. No, I, I, that's exactly right. Because even if, you know, I'm tempted to say that um, a normal population is cognitively diverse just because of the fact that people come up, um, uh, are born equipped with different, you know, um, genetic makeup and different types of intelligences and different, and, and they're they raised differently and all that. If you don't allow that diversity, that sort of innate diversity almost to, flour to flourish, and, and, and be sort of um, empowering to people, then they might not express it. And what you want uh, is uh, for the, the political system to be able to tap it. And if, if you don't have those, this, this liberal background of, um, of rights like freedom of speech um, or a liberal education that encourages uh, the expression of, of, of your, your own difference rather than conformism, then you will not get that cognitive diversity, even if it's under underlying uh, if it's um if it's if it's there it might not be expressed so i think liberal liberalism is a sort of a prerequisite yes excellent excellent um so now just keeping more or less continuous with 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 the thought we were just uh, discussing you make a distinction um between two distinct um, though clearly uh, they are related, um, mechanisms uh, for um, reaping the epistemic powers of democracy, um, majority rule and inclusive deliberation. Um, can you talk a little bit about how these two mechanisms work and why they are distinct and, and how they're, they're related? Yes. So I like to use a metaphor there too, um, although I don't use it in the book, I believe, but I, I, I like to think of deliberation as the um, Swiss army knife of the, the, the democratic toolbox, if you will, and majority rule as a scalpel. So by that, right. I mean that deliberation is a multifunction tool that does a lot of things, um, including um, um, identifying the problems and uh, coming up with solutions, right? So it's, it's a very uh, flexible and, and uh, multi-purpose multi uh, tool. And majority rule, by contrast, is the thing we resort to when we're running out of time and uh, we've, we've, we have, we've not been able to settle on one decision or one outcome through um, deliberation, which is time-consuming and, 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 um, and doesn't always yield one single ad outcome. So then we turn to majority rule as a way to choose between the, the options laid out by deliberation. And so that's why, to me, from an epistemic point of view, at least majority rule has only one function, which is predicting. Whereas deliberation as a function of sort of uh, setting up the agenda and sort of creating solutions. And um, so it's, these are two, instead of seeing them as competing um, um, tools, if you will, I see them as supplementary tools. Can you, good. Can you say something a little bit um, uh, further about um, majority rule as predicting? What, what does majority rule predict? Well, so, um, so when we when we when we vote, so that's my reading of, of voting, right? So that on okay. one reading, so and and again, I don't want to say that the epistemic approach um, tells you the whole story about democracy. So I do believe that a, a great amount of what we call democratic politics is simply about adjudicating fairly between competing interests, for example. Right. So there, one of the function the function of majority rule is simply to adjudicate fairly, right? We go with a larger number. Mm -hmm. But um, to the extent that the problems we're facing have an epistemic dimension, that is, are um, you know are li likely to have a better or worse answer, and the question is, okay, we have two candidates for for uh, for president. Our goal here is not just to adjudicate fairly between you know the Republicans and the Democrats. It's also to identify who of the two is the better candidate. Simply, like from a, from a factual point of view, almost. Um, and there, I think majority rule makes it more likely that we're going to pick the right one. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. I see. Great. Um, 
So let, let's pick up then uh, on 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 what you just touched on, which is the the the, the premise that seems to be underlying um, not only your epistemic conception of democracy, but um, any epistemic conception of democracy. Um, and this is, uh, I should mention, um, sort of a bone that gets picked between or amongst democratic theorists, um, which is uh, the view that you call political cognitivism, uh, which I take it is the commitment to the thought, as you just articulated it, that um, political outcomes or political judgments, or maybe even expressions of political judgments are expressions that have what philosophers call cognitive content, by which we mean roughly, they can be evaluated in sort of um, uh, um, uh, correct, you know, terms that evoke conceptions of correctness or truth and falsity, or justifiedness. Um, And I take it that a lot of our listeners will know that um, there are uh, pretty um, formidable expanses within political democratic theory that try to eschew this commitment. They want to say things like democracy is simply about, as you said earlier, adjudicating conflicting interests. There's nothing to evaluate in terms of correctness there. It's just, you know, how do we hammer out a solution given the fact that people want different things? But the epistemic cases are always going to, I think, have to invoke some standard or some conception, I should say, about correctness. So, the book, um, uh, the, the final full chapter of the book, that is the, the final chapter before your concluding chapter, um, is a defense of uh, political cognitivism. Right. Um, and so c- could, you, could you tell us a little bit uh, about um, the, that issue, which is a, hu- right. a huge conglomerate of many issues, uh, and your own defense? Right. So it's, it's a huge issue, um, in part a little bit contingently, I think in political science, I think uh, there, there, there has been a rejection of, of the concept of truth and the, the, the idea that there can be better and worse answers in politics, which I think it's just historically very contingent. But really, there's not, it's not that demanding. The, the idea is simply to ask, do, do we think that it's possible to make mistakes in politics? When we vote, when we deliberate, can we sometimes make mistakes? And I think anyone has to agree that, yes, that, I mean, it, there's no question. It's not just a matter of we chose um, to drive on the left or on, or on the right, in which case there's no better or worse answer, really. It just matters that we coordinate on some side. No, they, they are um, objectively wrong and objectively right um, or yeah, uh, answers in politics. So, for example, think of um, European democracy's appeasement strategy toward, um, toward Hitler or the right. Bay of Pigs disaster or even more recently some aspects of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. I mean, clearly... Um, by factual and moral standards, uh, some of the decision can be can arguably be said to have been mistakes. So, in a way, that's all I need uh, for political cognitivism. Uh, I think I don't I don't think epistemic democrats have to necessarily commit to something more. That's what usually they're cornered into to doing. Like you know, the, the opponents want to make us say that we believe in some platonic standard of truth that's like universal and absolute and and real in some in some concrete ways in some you know, um, some objective way. And I think, in fact, all you need to, to, to assume is that, um, it's very Habermasian move in a way that when we deliberate, it wouldn't make any sense for us to deliberate and exchange reasons if we were not trying to figure out something like, uh, uh, the right answer or the better answer. Right. And just to pick up on the, 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 um, invocation of Plato, there, there's another kind of platonic, charge um, that's associated sort of famously with uh, Hannah Arendt, that once you admit a concept of truth into your political philosophy, the the philosophy becomes platonic in a different sense. It becomes tyrannical, that truth is a, a tyrant's concept, and it's an, a fundamentally anti-democratic um, component of a political theory. Could you spell that out a little right, bit? Right. So- Yes, so Arendt and I would say Rawls are, are the two sort of influential authors that have sort of um, made this association between truth and, and I'm tempted to say terrorism or some kind of tyrannical politics. And mm-hmm. again, I think it's contingent. I, well, Arendt was clearly re- writing in the, in the shadow of the uh, Second World War and, and for Rawls, the, the, the sort of worry was about, you know, the... the the, the wars of religion and all the, the truth claims that had been used to oppress and and, uh, and 
and yes, uh, and tyrannize. And I, I just, I just argue there that we can absolutely decouple the notion of truth and and the notion of uh, coercive politics. They don't have to go together. And um, another another way to put it is that in fact, truth is not the cause. The concept of truth, when we use it, when we make uh, truth claims, this is not the cause of our disagreements. It's just a way of expressing them. And and if you do the the Rawlsian move of of replacing truth with a substitute concept like the reasonable, in a way it's it's an illusion to think it sells anything because we're going to disagree as well about what's the most reasonable solution. So we're going to run again into uh, uh, the same kind of disagreements that truth or the reasonable express as opposed to cause, and and it's not going to solve it. So I I um. In, in the end, it's a little bit semantic. You, if you if you are very uncomfortable with the concept of truth, you can you can decide not to use it and replace it by the reasonable or or the right or or the better or something like that. But at the end of the day, you need some kind of uh, procedure independent standard of correctness to to be able to say that one solution is better than than another. Right. Um, it's perfect. So um, you in giving examples about political errors as uh um, or as showing that it's it, everybody thinks it's possible to make mistakes in politics um you were talking primarily about kinds of examples that looked as if the error lied in some kind of factual um miscalculation about the number of troops or about the likely outcome of appeasement right. um but uh i take it that um in the chapter on uh, in defending political cognitivism, you make, a, I think, a very nice distinction between factual disagreements, disagreements uh, over values that have a factual component, and then, on the third hand, a, um, uh, 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 disagreements over uh, what you call basic or fundamental values that may not have right. – uh, a factual component. Can you can you give us some details on on how that distinction plays out? Um, so, I, I'd rather give you maybe um, examples of. Um, I think it's it's harder to give example there because they're they're bound to be extremely controversial. But I would say sure. that um, example of even fundamental moral principle where we can say that we've come to a conclusion that um, that that was the right move. It's, um, for example, saying that slavery is wrong. That, that, mm-hmm. There was a right. time, right, in history where this was not an obvious claim, and um, but but that I think is is a case of almost pure um, pure value that is um, that is uh, obviously right, and I, I think it's hard to disagree with that. I I'm, I think in the same category you you could probably find gay marriage, or it's much more recent, and again we you know um, it, it's harder to to make the case for that, but um, I so. Yes, I want. I want to make the claim that uh, moral um, political cognitivism is not just about facts; it's also about about values, and uh, it might even be about fundamental values. Although there, I'm, I'm a little bit more um, cautious, and and um, I'm happy to have a sort of uh, intermediate position where I grant that yes, maybe at the level of fundamental basic values, it's all it's all about um, um, adjudicating fairly between our competing views. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but in fact, I mean, you can have a minimal or or a, or a maximal version of political cognitivism that way, and I, I don't really choose right. there. Right, right, right. Um, so one one further detail on this, you could tell that this is the part of of the book that I'm personally, right, right. Uh, for better or worse, really, really interested in. Um, so. Um, the the, um, the 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 reference that you made um, a minute ago to sort of a, a procedure independent. Right criteria um uh can you tell us about that because i suspect that that's what um drives some of um the worry that um that truth has to in democratic politics truth has got some kind of tyrannical implication that is that there's a right answer that can be discerned independently of democratic processes um and that um I, th- I take it the Arendt thought or the kind of thought that Arendt is giving voice to there is the thought that, well, once we admit that there's a 
kind of correctness that is accessible, potentially at least independently of democratic procedures, we might discover some non-democratic procedure that's better at delivering uh, 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 or discovering or discerning those truths, and then democracy would be in peril. Right. Uh, by the concept of truth. Um, so what do you mean by by, by the procedure-independent uh, standard of correctness? Right. So first of all, what I don't mean is that it's an um, entirely independent standard of, of correctness in the sense of a real... Uh, universal, absolute kind of standard, right? It's not, it's not the platonic standard. It's just independent right. of the procedure. So it's not defined by the procedure in the sense that, um, in conception of pure procedural justice, for example, you know, whatever the outcome of, uh, of the throw of a dice is, um, that, that defines the right outcome. No, right. it, it's about there is something uh, independently of the procedure that, that, that is just or right. And the procedure is an imperfect way for us to get at it. So now, indeed, the worry is that, okay, but if, so there are actually a bunch of worries. I mean, even if you, if you, if you assume that there is such an independent standard of correctness, you might say, well, maybe it exists, but we don't, we don't have a way to verify it. So what's the point of talking about uh, political cognitivism? That's sort of the Jeremy Waldron uh, attitude to, to, the, to the question, I suppose. Um, and then you have the other worry, which is, well, if we, if if there was such a thing and uh, um, we could independently verify it, then we would no longer need democratic procedure to get there. And especially if this uh, this alternative route is uh, is um, is through experts or or um, th then uh, the case for democracy is, is weakened as a result. It's, it seems to open the the door to um, a defense of exp uh, expertocracy, right, or epistocracy, mm -hmm. as um, Islam puts it. So my answer to that is that. So to, to the latter point is that um, there are no experts that can sort of uh, take the shortcut. Uh, the only thing that could take us a short, for me, the answers are hidden behind the veil of the future in politics. So, for example, mm -hmm. on, on the Iraq war, um, at the time when the decision was made, um, I think we were, we were, you know, under the burdens of, uh, of, uh, of judgment and uh, the burdens of reason. So it was very, very hard to figure out the truth. But now with with, with this sort of um, time has passed and uh, we've, we've got access to more uh, knowledge about the circumstances in which the decision was made, etc. So I think that's what social sciences and history are about. We, we look back and we can figure out, not perfectly, but pretty close, whether something was a good or a bad answer. Uh, mm -hmm. So if we had a time machine, then we would have this like secondary route at the time when we make the decision to to make it right, but we don't. So there's no uh, short circuiting the democratic route in a way, because we, truth has revealed itself sort of um, in a lagged manner, right? So so that right. that's the sort of way I, I have of uh, answering the question of uh, we will no longer need democratic procedures to get there. No, we do because because we are, we are we are bound by by time constraints we have to make a decision at a, at time t and, and if truth is gets revealed only 10 years down the road um it won't help us right right excellent excellent um so um you've been very um generous with your mm -hmm. time um and um i i just wanted to thank you again uh for uh, appearing on new books in philosophy um and i usually um end up uh, with a, uh, a question uh, about um, what, uh, what you're doing next. So, uh, Elaine, uh, what's, what's, what's next uh, on the horizon for you? So, my next project is actually um, uh, also in democratic theory, but it's a very different uh, approach. I, I, so, what I've done so far is very uh, a priori and, and in, uh, in deductive. And what I'm interested mm -hmm. in doing now is much more um, inductive. So, I want to look at... Um, Various democratic innovations that um, that uh, try to tap the collective intelligence of the people and sort of see how you know new forms of direct and participatory democracy can 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 guide us about uh, what I'd like to call democracy 3.0 and 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 the principles <laughs> behind it. Right, I think we are in a transition phase. Uh, away from representative government and towards something something very different and so it's it's you know it's it's um i'm not prejudging the conclusion just yet i just have i just have this intuition that if you if you look at things like the icelandic case recently of uh, you know this this nation that decided to rewrite their foundational foundational social contract right through um, participatory and inclusive methods 
it's something completely new. It's something we, we, we representative government as a, as a concept cannot account for. And so similarly, um, I'm involved in a project with the Finnish government where we are crowdsourcing um, part of the process of a, a law reform on, on snowmobile regulation. And so it, it raises questions about the, the, the meaning of representation, that are, you know, legitimacy, uh, all sorts of things that uh, that we need a new framework really to understand. I think so. I'm I'm gonna so I want to also look at um, you know participatory budgeting in Brazil uh, and also workplace democracy because I think it's not just about change uh, sort of uh, introducing new principles or or um, discovering new principles of, of of democracy. It's also about expanding the domain of democracy. I think we've been. Uh, narrowly focused on on what we call the political or the public, when in fact there's there's a um, there's also this um, this domain of of the, the economic sphere where we we've bracketed the the democratic question, but in fact it's, it's becoming uh, urgent and and burning for a lot of people. Um, right, and so do, let me just ask a, 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 a philosophical question. So, um, do you see the um, the, the uh, the the fate, as it were, of the epistemic um, properties of democracy to sort of depend upon the depth of um, our democratic um, uh, ethos, as it were. That is, um, I, I take it that um, in a lot of epistemic stories, um, you know, d- democracy has to be understood not simply as a kind of government, but as a, a social order, um, and in which you know collective deliberation has to have a further reach yes. uh, than simply to the state. Is 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 that along the lines? That of is that is that? absolutely true, and I, I um I think we've we institutionally we've we have not exploited at all the potential of uh, of democratic reason, if you will. That there is so much more that that citizens could do. Um, uh, to 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 help improve the the you know governmental decisions and policies and and so I think uh, it's you're right it's it's about it's a little bit of a way of life and ethos it's it's way more than than just voting you know once every four years. Well, that sounds excellent, and um, the, uh, the 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 projects all all sound uh, very very interesting, and um, it's refreshing, I, I should say, um, to hear that you're uh, engaged in these um, sort of uh, real world uh, inquiries about um, sort of the, the the democratic potential uh, that is, I think, so far uh, untapped mm-hmm. in some of the technological. Um, uh, changes that have occurred in, in the past 15 years or so with our communications technology and the rest. So uh, all that sounds sounds wonderful, and uh, I will keep an eye out for uh, future work, and maybe we'll have you back on the on the podcast to talk about uh, you know your next. That book. would be wonderful. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, in between uh, then and now, uh, let me just thank you, uh, uh, Elaine Landemore, uh, for uh, joining us on New Books in Philosophy to talk about your book, Democratic Reason. Thank you, Bob. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Elaine Landemore of Yale University. We were talking about her new book, Democratic Reason, Politics, Collective Intelligence, and the Rule of the Many, which is newly published by Princeton University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening.